three this morning, and um, so thankful for our ministry there in Eagle Butte, and thankful for those who have gone. Um, I know there's a, another trip planned this summer to uh, a discipleship camp with um, students interested in Christ or have already come to know Christ. I'm looking forward to hearing how that goes. And if you want to get involved, certainly let us know, and there are plenty of opportunities also do want to let you know while you're finding your way to Luke 23 that I think it's next Sunday. Uh, we're going to begin our, um, our church membership class. If you're interested in learning about church membership, you'll want to sign up for that so we know that you're coming and able to provide you with the booklet that uh, we'll give you. And so you'll find that sign up at the welcome desk out in the foyer. So certainly avail yourself to that. I look forward to being able to spend four Sunday mornings during our Sunday school hour with you as we consider what does it mean to uh, be a member of Hamilton Baptist Church. And so here we are in Luke uh, chapter 23. We're beginning this very um, powerful and um, I guess somewhat sober and at the same time wonderful and delightful chapter in Luke's gospel. And so we'll begin in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. When he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who himself was in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus... He was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he's hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Our Father, we're thankful for your word as we consider our Lord on trial this morning. The truths in which we see or hear from his lips and the truths in which we see through his suffering. We pray, Father, that you would help us to appreciate it, not even that, but more than that, that it would be transformative, that it would change us as we see the type of king that Jesus truly is and the rejection in which he received. I pray, Father, that for your glory we would be made more like him. And so help us now through your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. History is often told by explaining this series of prominent and powerful kings and monarchs. History often is the history of rulers, I mean to say. 
And so if you spend any time in history, I certainly do enjoy it myself, you, it's not soon where you start learning about the people who are in charge and the things that they're doing. For instance, the Croesus, the final king of Lydia, reigned at the time of Josiah. Uh, he was so wealthy that he made everything either of gold or silver. Or Caesar Augustus, the mightiest of the Roman empires who brought about the Pax Romana and instituted a system of government that lasted longer than any other system. Or consider Richard the Lionhearted, the leader of the, the ill-fated Crusades, an enormous man, incredibly strong. He once met with the Muslim counterpart to decide the fate of Jerusalem, and he drew his sword and cut through a bar of iron with one swing. The Muslim sultan was not impressed. He took a down pillow and sliced through it completely with his razor-sharp saber. Genghis Khan of Mongolia was known for his hunger for expansion and his death. He ruled over the largest kingdom ever up to that point. Hong Wu of China, the founder of the Ming Dynasty in the 14th century, was a lover of education, established schools throughout China and trained and educated many of the future leaders, therefore, therefore establishing his dynasty, the Ming Dynasty, to be longer than any dynasty in the long history of China. Or Pinch Henry, the navigator of Portugal, set up a school of navigation that allowed navigators to sail all over the world, leading to Columbus's discovery of the new land. Because of him, the nation of Brazil speaks Portuguese. Or Shah Jahan, the emperor of India, renowned for his architecture, left behind the Taj Mahal as a mausoleum to his dead wife. Louis XIV of France, the sun king, known for his extravagance and his luxury, building the palace Versailles. Or Peter the Great of Russia, quite the opposite, a man of humble taste and incredible work ethic, wear common peasant clothes and enjoyed talking about shipbuilding and working alongside blacksmiths. Or Frederick the Great, the, the military genius whose military strategy still, to this day, is studied at West Point. All these men are, are known for for their great accomplishments, and we look at them and study them and consider all that they have done and the impact and legacy in which they have left. But there is, of course, a king greater than all of these, isn't there? Probably doesn't surprise you to hear me say so. A king that did not lead a crusade, he did not build a palace, he did not institute a system of government, but he did change the world. Changed the world, in fact, without any political power at all, without holding any office, sitting upon any throne. A, a king who we see here today is bound and on trial before a lowly regional governor. The king, of course, I speak of is Jesus. And, and we find him here on trial, don't we? We, of course, have been studying Luke's gospel for some time now, haven't we? And if you remember, back in the beginning, everything started out so wonderful, and we call the early chapters of Luke's gospel the Galilean springtime, where uh, there Jesus is ministering amidst the sunny hillsides of Galilee, and the adoring crowds flock to him, and people are healed, and demons are running away, and, and the dead are being raised, and the spirit is moving amongst the villages there in the north. And, and we saw, even in our study, Luke, just days earlier to this event, he rides into Jerusalem with all the Acclamation and praise, quoting the psalmist as declaring Jesus the long-awaited Messiah. And there he would gather people during that week at his temple after he has cleared it, and he would heal them and, and, and teach them. And, and yet now, just days later, we find 
him beaten and bound before a Roman governor. And if you didn't know this story, you would, you would be thinking, well, what happened? Right? I mean, Luke has declared over and over again, this is the, the king. This is the Messiah. And it's almost as if the Messiah burst onto the scene and the, and the ancient rebellion against God is somewhat cut off guard. There's one pastor who says, well, evil finally finds its footing. Selfish greed and false strength begins to fight back. And we saw that a couple, day, a couple Sundays ago when Jesus was arrested in the garden and, and he's been tried throughout night, early into the morning, by these religious authorities. If you put it all together, he had three religious trials. The last, well, all of them, in fact, but the last will render the final verdict that he is guilty of blasphemy, that Jesus has claimed to be the Son of God. That is a crime deserving death, according to the perverse Jewish leaders at this time. Now, of course, they would have killed Jesus right there if they could, but they did not have that authority to execute capital criminals. And so they have all this time been plotting to do what they actually could not accomplish. For that, they're going to need the help of Rome. And so they bring Jesus bound Friday morning to a man named Pontius Pilate. And it's in this trial with Pilate and, the, and then the following trial with, with Herod the Tetrarch that you'll see at least three truths about this King Jesus. The first being that he is a surprising king. That is, he's a king unlike any other king that you have ever seen or known. The second will be that he is a rejected king. And we shall consider the beginning of his rejection today in the passage before us. So let's begin with this idea that Jesus is a surprising king, as you see in verse 1. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him to Pilate. And the, the company or the assembly would be the 71-member Sanhedrin. This would be the highest ruling authority amongst the Jewish people. And, and all of them, well, probably not quite all of them. There's at least one individual or two that are not with them. But most of them in their long flowing robes and their furrowed brows... And their hateful eyes, they drag Jesus bound to this man named Pilate. Pilate would be the prefect, or it's just a fancy word for governor of Judea, from the years 27 to 37 A.D. Now, if you were, just by way of footnote, just aside, if, if you ever took a religious studies class uh, in, a, in a university, perhaps about 60 years ago, you undoubtedly would have heard that Pilate did not exist and that this was just another one of the many evidences that the Bible is just bad history and it's just full of made-up stories from religious zealots. That's what they would have taught you almost universally. That is until 1961 when a team of archaeologists, Italian archaeologists, discovered a slab in an amphitheater in the city of Caesarea and on that slab was engraved Pontius Pilate prefect of Judea, has dedicated to the people of Caesarea a temple in honor of Tiberius. I simply just mention that because I always get excited when, when the world rages against Scripture and it seems every single time, give it enough time, archaeology will prove that what we are reading is excellent history. In fact, I would suggest even infallible history as God has given it to us. And so here's Pilate. And in fact, as that inscription implies, Pilate normally lives in the seaside town of Caesarea. But he happens to be in Jerusalem at this time because it's Passover. And he rules over Jerusalem. And now all the pilgrims gather to the Passover. And here comes the governor. He's going to reside in Jerusalem for a week or two to make sure everything stays under control. Things don't get out of hand. And so while he's there, of course, Jesus is brought to him, and this is an event that would change his life forever. 
In fact, it would change the world forever. That Pontius Pilate would, will reside over the most infamous trial ever in human history. In fact, I, I say to you, without exaggeration, he would commit the worst judicial injustice that has ever been committed as Jesus is brought before him. Now, of course, the Jews bring him to Pilate because Jesus is declared to be the Son of God. Now, Pilate could care less whether Jesus is claiming to be related to some Jewish deity. That doesn't interest Rome in the slightest bit. But the charges of revolution or sedition, well, that might capture Pilate's ear. And so these religious leaders who care very little for the truth bring three political accusations against Jesus. They're all recorded in verse 2. And they begin to accuse him, saying, number one, we have found this man misleading our nation, number two, and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and number three, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So the first charge is that Jesus is subverting the nation. That, of course, is a lie. If you look at any of Jesus' actions and any of Jesus' teaching, he had never in the slightest bit has, has taught that sedition against the ruling authority is a good idea. The second accusation is that he opposes paying Roman taxes is even more clearly a lie. If you remember just a, a few days ago, they asked him about that very question, should we pay taxes to Rome? And Jesus, in a sense, says, yes, you give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. He's says the exact opposite of what they charge him to be. But the third claim that he claims to be Christ, a king, now that's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting because it's true, but not in the way the Jewish leaders imply. In fact, I, this charge that he's a king, perhaps because it seems so absurd. I mean, he doesn't look like a king. He's beaten, his nose is broken, his eyes are swollen, he's bloody, he's bound, and yet they're claiming him to be a king. Well, that piques Pilate's interest. And so he'll ask a question that's recorded in all four of our Gospels. You see it in verse 3. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now please note, when Pilate asks him this, he's not asking him a theological question. He's not asking him, Are you the Messiah that has been promised for centuries, if not millennia? Is that who you are? No, he's asking him, quite simply, Are you my rival? Right? I'm a ruler. Are you claiming to be a ruler too? Are you a threat to Rome? Are you leading a movement? Are you a king? And Jesus' answer is very interesting. I want to spend some time exploring it. It's a, in fact, an answer, by the way, that all four Gospels almost identically quote him. Uh, he gives his answer there at the end of verse 3. And he answered him, you have said so. I was teaching my children this last night during our family worship, and I got to that point where Jesus says, you know, Pilate says, are you a king? And Jesus says, you have said so. And, and I think it was one of my sons says, well, what does that mean? Right? You have said so? That's kind of a strange answer, isn't it? Don't you think? It's literally, in the Greek, just two words. It's literally, you say. Right? And it makes you wonder, well, what, what, what kind of answer? Is he saying yes? In fact, I took a poll of my children. Most of them said, well, we think he's saying yes, but we're not quite sure. Is he saying yes, I am the king of the Jews? Well, if you actually read 1 Timothy 6, it's interesting. Paul will say, yes, he is claiming to be the king of the Jews before Pilate. He made the good confession before Pilate, Jesus will say. In fact, some of your translations, I think the NIV kind of captures some, try to capture the nuance. I think it puts it, it is as you say, is how they translate Jesus. That he is affirming that he is a king. But let's, let's admit that he's being very ambiguous, isn't he? I mean, this is not clear. He doesn't come out and say, yes, of course I am the king of the Jews. 
It's an interesting way to answer. In fact, with the Sanhedrin in just the previous trial, he had no trouble coming out and saying, I'm the son of man, by the way, and you're going to see me at the right hand of God in power, and I'm coming in judgment, and so you all should be preparing for that judgment when I come. Had no problem being very, very clear with the religious leaders. And he stands before this political leader, and he asks him this question. He says, okay, I want to understand, are you the king? And he says, well, you say so. Why does he answer that way? Well, I, I think he answers that way because it's a very difficult question to answer. It, it's difficult in the sense is if he says, yes, I am the king of the Jews, well, what would Pilate think? I think Pilate would immediately conclude, okay, you are a ruler. You are a revolutionary. You are my rival. Well, clearly, that's not true. Jesus doesn't want political power. He's never aspired to that. He doesn't want to rule territory. But if he says, no, I'm not the king of the Jews, well, Pilate would just think, okay, you're just another religious guru. You're just here to kind of, you know, give us peace in our heart. and You make no real claims upon life and society and culture. Well, that's not true either, is it? Jesus is not simply here to give us purpose. He's here to bring a kingdom. As he has told us over and over again, he's a kingdom he will rule. But the kingdom in which Christ rules, he will not rule politically. And so are you a king? Well, yeah, I am a king, but I'm not the king that you think I am. I'm a surprising king, isn't he? He's surprising because he doesn't seek political power. Isn't that odd? I mean, isn't that what it means to be a king, is to have political authority and political power? And Jesus, in fact, said, not only do I not seek political power, my my servants, they don't seek political power. That is, they are not fighting to bring my kingdom. No one, of course, should ever war in the name of Jesus. In fact, I'll go a step farther. That might um, perhaps upset some of you, but here we go. I don't think anybody should ever rule in the name of Jesus. I, I think that's inappropriate. That is, I don't think anybody should say, okay, I am taking this office of political authority in the name of Jesus Christ. In the sense that, well, okay, we want, what we want is a Christian nation like they have the Islamic, you know, the, do we want the Christian Republic of America? Is that what we want? Well, I'll tell you, if they tried that, it's called Christendom. You want to see how that worked out? Look in Europe. And you have state churches that are funded by the government and, the, and, and, and supported by the taxes, and, and, and therefore we are a Christian nation. And what does that mean? Well, that means that if you want to get ahead or you want to be anybody, you have to be in church, don't you? You have to be a Christian. And soon the churches are filled with fake and nominal Christians, and then they've lost all of their power. You look at those churches, and some of you have traveled to Europe, and they are beautiful buildings, but they are largely empty, aren't they? It does not work. I think it's Tim Keller who says, when church gets into bed with political power, it loses its real power. Jesus says, well, I'm, I'm a king, but I'm not a political king. I'm not a political ruler. I don't want people ruling uh, and, and taking up the sword in my name. But, but at the same time, he is ruling, right? He, is, he does have authority, and he will rule in, so, in, in such a way that it will change the entire world. But political power is far too weak tool for him to use. In fact, you just think one of the, if you, again, if you like history, one of the most fascinating studies for you to do is, is to look at how the church in the first couple centuries, what we call the patristic era, how it started with just a handful of people and grew and eventually within a couple hundred years actually changed the culture of Rome. Do you know uh, when in, in the first century in Rome, the ratio for male to female was 14 males for every 10 females? I don't know, extraordinary. You know why? Well, when they would have a baby girl, and they realized, well, this girl will provide no income to the family. This girl's just going to cost us. It was common practice to take that little girl and put her out on some garbage heap as an infant to die, to be exposed. 
You know what the church began to do? The church began out to go to the garbage heap and bring those little girls into their family. They began to adopt them. You know, in Rome, in the early centuries, it was, interesting enough, against the law to have an affair unless you were a man. Right? Men could have mistresses. Men could have affairs, but women couldn't. And you know, the church came around and said, no, 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 no. No one has affairs. We're devoted to each other. We're faithful to each other. You, you know, in Rome, if you were a widow, you were pressured, almost required to remarry quickly. And the church says, no, no, especially if you're above a certain age, we'll care for widows. And as a result, this community of Christians, families begin to flourish. And in fact, you read the early centuries, women begin to flock to Christianity because they found dignity and they found safety and they found care. You see, when it comes to sex and when it comes to family, the church is far more conservative than the Roman Empire. But do you know what else was happening in, in those early days? In Rome, everyone was divided by race, income status, country of origin, Right? And the church says, no, 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 we're all equal. So you come to us, and you're rich. You don't get the best seat, and the poor sit, stand in the back. No, we're all sinners saved by grace. We're all on the same footing. We all love each other. We all call each other brother and sister. That's the most important thing. So we don't care what your skin color is. They say, we don't care how much money you have or how much education or what class you come from. We're all equal. In fact, in Rome, the poor and the sick and the slave and the immigrant, they were totally disregarded. And yet they found love in this people called the church. And the church gave their money away. And the church cared for others that were unlike them. When it came to the poor and the immigrants and money, the church was far more liberal than the Roman Empire. And they had never seen anybody, anything like this. And you know what happened is the church began to change the world. I mean, the secular historians have to acknowledge this. Rome, over the centuries, became a far less brutal, far less severe place. And, and as, they, as these Christians begin to flourish in this way of uh, the life-giving uh, way of life, this attractive way of life, and without yielding any political power, with not a single Christian elected to office, simply Christians obeying their king, they changed the world. I mean, what, think about what, what can you do with political power? Like if we had, let's say, well, Christians got all the political power, what can we do with that? Well, we, we could pass laws, and then we can enforce laws, right? And I'll tell you what we can't do. We can't change hearts. Now, I'm not saying, let me take a step back now, uh, okay? I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't be in political office. I'm not saying that it's bad to have good laws. No, I think good laws are good for us. But please understand that th that type of political influence is far too weak for Jesus. It's not what he, being a king, being a president, oh, that's, that's a power that is far too little, that could do far too little for Christ. And you know what Jesus wants to do? See, Jesus doesn't want simply to put laws on the books. He's tried that before. Remember Sinai? Here's my laws, do it. How did that work out? He instead wants to put laws on our hearts, doesn't he? He wants to change us from the inside. That's the kind of king he is. He wants to put the rules and laws, not, not, not force them from without, but put them from within. He wants to, to take out our heart and give us a new heart. It was uh, Dr. Christian Bernard who was the first successful surgeon to perform a heart transplant. I think he was South African. And, and he performed a heart transplant on a man named Philip Blayberg. And in a follow-up appointment, he asked him, he said, would you like to see your old heart? Dr. Bernard went up to the cupboard and took down a glass container and handed it over to Philip Blayberg. 
Inside that container was Bladeberg's old heart. For a moment, he stood there in stunned silence. The first man ever to hold his own heart in his hands. Finally, he said, so this is my old heart that caused me so much trouble. He handed it back, turned away, and left forever. Is that not what Christ does for us? Can those of us who are in Christ, our king, he doesn't give us laws, he gives us a new heart. And then he takes out our heart that gives us so much trouble and he gives us a new heart. So my question for you is, are you obeying this king? Not because he has rules and laws, but because you have a heart for him. That you delight to obey him. If you are, I think you'll, you'll find gentleness flourishing in your household. I, I, I think you'll, you'll see patience in your trials, grow, growing patience. I think you'll find faithfulness in your relationships and sacrificing your love and an increasing willingness to forgive those who have wronged you. He is a king, isn't he? But he is a surprising king. He's a king without any political power, for political power is far too weak for Jesus. But he's also a rejected king. So point number two, and last, a rejected king. Well, it's clear to Pilate that he's not a political revolutionary, and, and so Pilate declares him innocent, as you know in verse 4. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Please know that Pilate is a paranoid politician who would have no problem at all killing anyone he considered to be a threat, but Jesus clearly is no threat to him. It's obvious this man is harmless. He's done nothing deserving death. We'll say later, right? He's innocent. Case closed. The gavel, innocent, not guilty, right? Let him go. Um, But unfortunately, the religious leaders would not be deterred, as you see in verse 5. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place, right? They're insisting, they're, they're, they're pressing, it's getting out of hand. They're going, they're saying, no, no, you need, to, you need to kill him. And Pilate hears an interesting word in that accusation. Did somebody say Galilee, right? Because he does not rule over Galilee, as you see in verse 7. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod who himself was at Jerusalem in that time, right? That's not my jurisdiction. This Herod's problem. Now, no offense to all the civil servants in this room, but if you, anyone who's tried to get help from the government recognizes this strategy, don't you? Right? Galilee, I'm sorry, wrong line, you know, wrong office, over there. No, it's not my problem. Go to somebody else, right? And so, so let, let Herod deal with you. Now, by the way, he just declared Jesus innocent, the judge, it wouldn't have been great if he said, well, by the way, who arrested this man? Who beat him without my, my authority? Right? Well, you are in deep trouble. Wouldn't that have been a different story if Pilate had a backbone, but instead you're somebody else's responsibility? And off to Herod he goes. Herod is not, uh, this is Herod the Tetrarch, not King Herod, who we saw early in Luke chapter 2. Remember King Herod, uh, that, the man who, who killed all the baby boys in Bethlehem? This is his son, Herod Antipas. He's uh, the Tetrarch, which simply means he rules a fourth of a region, and he rules up in Galilee. Herod will be half Jewish, and therefore he is down uh, from Galilee, uh, just like uh, uh, Pilate is, and he's there celebrating the Passover uh, because of his Jewish ancestry. Now, we've already encountered Herod Antipas, if you remember that this is the man that we, in fact, he was quite a pervert, isn't he, because he lusted after his 
his niece, who also happened to be a stepdaughter in some drunken stupor, and then went on to behead John the Baptist. He's somewhat of a paranoid man as well, because when Jesus begins to emerge and becomes popular and Herod begins to hear of him, he, he thinks that this might be John's ghost who's come back to haunt him, Luke tells us. And so this is the man that Jesus goes to, be about a 10-minute walk to his palace for another trial. This will be, if you're keeping track, trial number five for Jesus on this fateful day. Surprisingly, what we'll see is that Herod is excited to see Jesus, except he's excited for all the wrong reasons, as you see in verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he's hoping to see some sign done by him. Now, remember, most of Jesus' miracles were performed in Galilee. Herod's heard all these stories, and now he wants to see for himself. Never mind this man is on trial for his life. Herod wants to be amused. But Jesus is not interested in playing these games, as Luke tells us in verse 9. So he questioned him at some length, but Jesus made no answer. There, Jesus undergoes this long interrogation with Herod, in which Jesus does not respond to him. Not even once, he remains silent. Herod, of course, is not the only one speaking. You see there in verse 10, the chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And so they keep accusing him. And Herod keeps questioning him. But Jesus remains silent, just as it was foretold by the prophet Isaiah some 700 years earlier that the Messiah would be like a sheep that was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shears is silent so he opens not his mouth. This is simply a silent submission to his oppressors, his unjust oppressors, as Jesus shows that he is the Savior who has come into this world. Well, this silence, of course, as you can imagine, doesn't sit so well with a man named Herod. He wants to be entertained, right? And Jesus is not playing his game. So they decide, well, we'll play a different game, as you look in verse 11. When Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and, and mocked him. They, they, they're going to have their fun one way or another, so we'll mock him and we'll treat him terribly. And, of course, this is not the first time Roman soldiers have done this. Uh, Luke doesn't tell us this, but we know, of course, that Pilate soldiers would, would mock Jesus as a king, and they would put a crown of thorns on his head and give him a, a rod in his hand, a pretend scepter, and they would bow before him and say, Hail, King of the Jews! Yeah, aren't you wonderful? And they'd take the rod and they would beat him in the head repeatedly with it, and they would, they would mock Jesus, and they would uh, abuse Jesus, and they would sneer and jeer and, and, and ridicule. Jesus. In fact, Jesus has been mocked and beaten and rejected even before these civil trials. He was beaten by the religious soldiers. So the government soldiers will mock Jesus as king, but the religious soldiers mock him as a prophet. There's a passage we kind of skipped over last week. I just want to turn to there for a moment. If you look back in chapter 22, this is kind of in between these religious trials, and you see there in verse 63, these are the religious soldiers. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, but blaspheming him. So Jesus is blindfolded and, and, and he can't see anything encircled by a mob of violent men who undoubtedly are trying to prove their manhood to the soldier next to them. And blow after blow falls upon Jesus. He can't see it, doesn't know where it's coming from, can't protect himself. Without warning, he's hit in the nose or kicked in the back or punched in the ribs. And just over and over again, all the while, this group of men, they laugh and, and rejoice as you recoil, recoil in pain. 
We also know at this time that they, uh, according to Matthew's gospel, I believe it is, or maybe Mark, they, they spit upon Jesus during this time to add to their, their mocking. I don't know if you've ever been spit on, but I, I'm not sure there's, <laughs> there's anything more belittling than someone saying, you know, I could spit on the ground, but I think so little of you, I think I'll spit on you instead. God comes to earth, and this is how we treat him. They play this little game with him. Who hit you? As the blindfolded Messiah is struck repeatedly. Right? Aren't you a prophet? Come on. Tell us who hit you that time. One day I think he'll tell them. And if they do not repent, it will be to their eternal damnation. But I, I, beyond that, I want you to notice the dark irony of what's happening here. As they attack him, and mock him as a prophet, they're actually proving him to be a prophet. Because it was in chapter 18 and verse 32 that Jesus says that, that they will mock me and shamefully treat me and spit upon me. He predicted what they're doing to him. And so the mocking and the, bidding, uh, the, the, the beating and the spitting proves the very thing they're denying, that he is a prophet. In fact, I would say far more than a prophet, for Isaiah said of the coming Savior, I gave my back to those who strike me, my cheek to those who pull out my beard, and I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And so now as the torture begins, Jesus receives it as mankind utterly rejects him. You know why? He does so for you. That's why he receives it. He receives it, every blow, every taunt, every spit he receives is an expression of his love for sinners. See, we, we of course, say Jesus died on the cross for us, which is true, praise be the Lord. But he, he suffered on the way to the cross for us. And, and it, it, this, listen, if the surprising king demands authority in your heart, the rejected king will help you in suffering. Just by way of application, what is it, how does this impact me? Well, have you ever been on, in, in the midst of suffering and in the midst of trial and hardship and difficulty? And, of course, we've all been there, and, and some of us are headed there, aren't we? And, um, and, and someone, and it's usually a well-meaning person, comes up to you and says, um, I, I know you're suffering, but you need to understand you're going to get through this, right? And it's all going to be okay, and, and everything is going to work out. In fact, sometimes I'll say, you know, what you probably should do is this, or, or, or you probably should do is that. And, of course, they're very, very kind and loving to you. But, you know, if you're in a certain state of mind, maybe it's just me, um, but maybe not, part of you wants to say, how do you know it will be all right? You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know this pain and suffering. And you, so you sit in your sunshine and tell me, in the midst of the storm of my life, it's going to be all right? You don't know anything. However, when someone comes to you, and they've been through what you've been, and maybe a hundred times worse, and that person says, listen, I have sat in your seat. I have walked this path. You need to hear me. You are going to get through this. You will emerge. In fact, it would help you if you do this, and it would help you if you do that, right? And what happens? You feel strengthened. 
you feel encouraged, right? You feel comforted in that. I want you to see that Jesus, unlike all the little G gods up there, has walked your path. I don't care what your suffering is. I don't care what your hardship is. He has felt your pain. Have you been verbally assaulted? So was Jesus. Have you stood alone against the world? So was Jesus. People plot to ruin your life? So was Jesus. You feel lonely, abandoned? So was Jesus. Are you misunderstood? So was Jesus. Have you been betrayed by a loved one? So was Jesus. Have you been physically assaulted? Are you a victim of abuse? So was Jesus. Have you been ashamed, embarrassed, mocked? So was Jesus. Have you been rejected by everyone? So was Jesus. Have you been destitute and not sure what tomorrow will bring? So was Jesus. Have you had your heart full of sorrow and sadness and sickness? So was Jesus. You ever face imminent death full of suffering? So was Jesus. You ever feel abandoned by God? So was Jesus. And I don't care where you walk in this world of trouble. Every pain you experience, every trial you encounter, you will find Jesus there. He will say to you, my beloved, let me help. I have felt this pain, and I can help you through it. There is comfort in suffering because our God is not far off and distant looking down from his throne. He walked your path and 10,000 times more. In fact, I think it's more than that because we know the end of the story, and is it not that how God just turns everything on his head and all the suffering and trouble and hardship in which Jesus encountered, God works out in this amazing, glorious plan that brings about my salvation and your salvation. Don't you think that one day when you get to the end of history or, or the beginning of history, whatever it is, and that day you stand with Jesus and he's going to show you, I want to see how all the evil and suffering and trouble in which you've experienced, I am going to redeem every last bit of it. I'm going to turn on its head for your eternal gain and glory. I just can't wait for that day. Well, Herod has finished with his sport with Jesus, hasn't he? There's one final taunt. He dresses Jesus up and sends him back to Pilate. Look on in verse 11. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For behold, they had been at enmity with each other. Only Luke, by the way, shares this verse 12. This is clearly a, a result of some interview that Luke had. As we know, he's a well-researched um, gospel. I, I just want you to know, the only reason Luke includes verse 12 is just to show, because it happened. He's just this amazing historian, and it, it is true every time. And so we see that Herod holds Jesus in contempt. He doesn't like Jesus, but he doesn't, note, he doesn't find him guilty. Because if he thought he was guilty, he wouldn't hesitate to kill him on the spot. But he knows him to be innocent. In fact, Pilate recognizes that Herod has pronounced him innocent. Look down in verse 14, which we'll consider, I hope, next week. Uh, it, it says, and Pilate saying, and after, you exam- after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Verse 15, neither did Herod, right? I don't find him guilty, and Herod doesn't find him guilty, right? So they both find him innocent, and they both reject him, and they become friends because of it. It reconciles them together in this perverse friendship based upon their contempt and mistreatment of the Son of God. That reminds me of the world. The world doesn't agree on a lot of things, but they could agree on not liking Jesus. 
not liking God. I mean, the, the whole world, to him, let's use his name as a curse word. Why don't we all just agree that we could turn his name into something filthy? Or let's ridicule his children. Of course, the world doesn't do this. Individuals do this. I mean, people just demand that God take care of their needs. They pay him no mind until the hardship comes, and then they have all these demands for God. And if God doesn't come through, they feel, feel totally comfortable mocking him. It's just what these religious leaders and Pilate did and Herod did. They, we put God on trial. We think all this trouble in the world, right? You've got um, disasters in Florida and all the rest, and we think, well, God, you're doing a bad job. What's going on? You're guilty. Jesus, you're guilty. Or, or you can only be saved through Jesus? That seems very intolerant and unkind. I don't like that at all. Jesus, you're guilty of intolerance. Or hell, that's primitive. I mean, who believes in hell anymore? Or the demons and devils? Come on, let's get with the time. Jesus, you're outdated. Jesus, you're guilty. Or everyone's a sinner? I mean, that is not a message for the 21st century. That's pretty outdated, right? Jesus, you're guilty. I mean, how many times has Jesus been judged through the, the, the millennia? How many times have, have I judged him in my heart? I don't like the way my life is going. I don't like the way you're running my life, right? Guilty, 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 guilty. We're constantly judging Jesus. In fact, it didn't just start here. You know, God has been judged throughout the Bible. Put God on trial way back in Exodus. Remember when the sons of Israel were wandering through the wilderness, and I think it were three days out of actually being redeemed from their bondage, their 400-year bondage, by the mighty arm of God and the ten plagues. And you know what they do? Well, they start grumbling. Three days. They're grumbling against God. It's God, you're not doing this, and God, you're not doing that. And then finally, in the third time, in Exodus 17, they, 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 the Bible says they test God. They put God on trial. They charge God with criminal negligence. You are not taking, what, you just bring us out here to die? What kind of God are you? You're a terrible God. They judge God. You're not running our lives properly. And they judge God. They test God. And, and you know what? God finally, the third time, God finally hears them, if you will. Of course, he heard them all the times. But God says to Moses, very interesting, Exodus 17, God says to Moses, listen, okay, we need to deal with this. And so I want you to gather the people at this big rock over here. And uh, by the way, bring your staff. Now, remember the staff of Moses. We've seen that repeatedly in the book of Exodus. The staff is what God used to bring down the plagues of judgment upon Egypt. And so now God says, okay, gather the people and, and Moses. I want you to bring, make sure you bring your staff. As if God is saying, okay, you want a trial? That's fine. I'm going to summon you. Moses, bring, bring, bring the staff. We're going to court. And what, what must they have thought? What must Moses have thought, right? You guys are in it for it now. You pushed him a little bit too far, and you saw what he did to the Egyptians. Now it's your turn. And they gather, they gather, everybody gathers at the rock, and, it, and the Bible says, and this is extraordinary, you'll miss it if you read too fast, and God says, I will stand before you at the rock, not you will stand before me. I'll, right, when you come to a king, does a king stand before you? No, no, no. You stand before a king. But God, God says, I will stand before you. And he says, you will take your staff and what? You know what he says? You'll strike the rock. Well, God just said, I'm going to stand before the rock. In, in other words, what he's telling Moses to do is you're to strike where I'm standing. You're to strike me. The, the staff of the judgment of God is to fall upon me. And what comes out of the rock? Well, you know, there's life-giving water. It's salvation. Can you imagine when the, you know, the people of Israel gather before the, this rock 
and they're over here, and, and then here's the rock, and God's standing before it, and Moses is in the middle, and he raises his staff of judgment, and I don't know, does he pause there for a moment as they think the staff is coming down upon them, the judgment of God is finally coming them, and he turns, and he strikes God with the wrath of God so that the people might be saved. God, who has every right to judge them, to strike them, says, strike me instead. Is that not what we see here on the cross? Is that not what he's doing with Jesus? As Tim Keller, who a sermon I was listening to a while ago, tells this story of a German play. Um, that a German play, it was called The Sign of Jonah, and it, it was written uh, right after World War II. And the Germans, as they're kind of emerging from World War II, begin to understand, okay, all the, the Holocaust and the, the death camps and the concentration camps and, and all the horrors of that. They, they have this crisis because someone has to be blamed for that, doesn't it? I mean, someone, I mean there has to be justice. And so in, in this play, it's like the search for who to blame. And so they, they go to the people and say, you all should be on trial for, the, for what happened at the Holocaust. And the, and the people say, no, no, what are you talking about? Well, you shouldn't be on trial. We didn't do anything. It's the soldiers. The soldiers should be on trial. And so they go to the soldiers and they say, okay, you all should be on trial for what happened at the Holocaust. And the soldiers say, no, 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 no. We're following orders. We have no authority. It's the officers. The officers need to be on trial. So they go to the officers and say, okay, you guys, you guys, um, uh, you ran the death camps. You should be on trial for what happened in the Holocaust. They say, what, what are you talking about? It wasn't our idea. It was the politicians. And so they go, to the, they go to the politician and just go to group after group after group. And every group refuses to accept blame and, and instead casts it upon someone else. Well, well, who's left? Well, God is. And so they all agree. They all come to agreement. We know who to blame. Finally, we figured out. Let's blame God for the Holocaust. I mean, it's his world after all, isn't it? God's powerful. He knows everything. He knew exactly what was happening. Why didn't he stop it? Certainly God's to blame. And so they put God on trial, and they declare with one voice, unified voice, guilty. God is guilty. And in the play, it reads, this is the sentence they give to God. Let him become a human being. Let him become a wanderer on the earth. Let him become homeless and hungry and thirsty. And let him die. And when he dies, let him be disgraced and ridiculed. They did the atrocities, and yet they blame God. That's what we all do. It is the theologian Edmund Clowney who said about this play, realize that when they pass this sentence, they are demanding God to pay for their sins. How unjust. But God in his perfect righteousness has done more than our cursing dares demand. And you see God, you see this in the rejection of Jesus? God, instead of coming and judging us, he came to bear our judgment. You know the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10 that Jesus is the rock at Horeb. Paul sees the parallel. Jesus is the one who says, I deserve to be the judge, and you deserve to be on trial. Jesus, they're hanging on the cross, and all of humanity, including you and I, on the other side. And who stands in the middle? It's God. One, on one side, you have the innocent Jesus. The other side, you have vindictive and rebellious humanity. And the staff of God's wrath is in his hand as the sky draws black. And he raises it. And by his infinite grace, it doesn't fall on you but it falls on Christ. I will deal with your evil, he says, by bearing it myself. I come not to strike you with the rod, but I come to be struck by it for you. 
Perhaps you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. This is the heart of our faith. We believe that we are rebellious people. We believe we've gone our own way. The Bible calls that sin. And God, in so much love and grace, says, I will have my son bear it. He will take the punishment for it. He will be rejected because of your sin. And as if that were not enough, he says, all all you simply need to do to receive this gift is to to bow your knee to me as your king. (laughs) You just need to turn from your sin. Turn your back on it. Not that you'll never sin again, but say, it's not the life I want to live anymore. I want to follow Jesus. You surrender your life to him. And he says, I'll cover you with my grace and mercy. I'll adopt you into my family. It's been my prayer this week that God would stir someone's heart here, that you would feel God calling you to himself, that you would even cry out to him, even in your heart, God, I believe. I am a sinner, and I bow to King Jesus. I place my faith in him. Forgive me. I pray that you would make that commitment to God today. That will determine your eternity. I believe that with all my heart. In fact, I tell you by the authority of the word of God, your decision to what to do with Jesus will determine whether you spend eternity in heaven or hell. It will. It's not your good works. It's not your religious acts. It's not your righteousness. It's what you do with Jesus. He has borne your penalty. Will you accept that? If you would make that commitment today, as always, one of our elders, I think it's Josh today, whoever reads scripture will be down front. We'd love to be able to talk to you. Maybe you talk to someone who brought you or a friend. This is not something you'll keep quiet if it's true in your heart. You'll want to share that with someone. And for my Christian brothers and sisters, as we close today, I I want you to just rejoice in the truth that you already know that Christ has been judged for you, hasn't he? He should have judged you, and he was judged instead of you. So who are we to judge people? If we did not receive the judgment that was due us, how can we feel superior to anyone? We need to begin to recognize that forgiveness needs to be flowing out of our heart. As God has been delighted to forgive you, we too need to be forgiving to other people. In fact, one day, Christian, you're going to stand before this judge. You don't understand that. The Bible says that we'll all stand before him, and you will have nothing to say on that trial. You will offer nothing in your defense. But praise be to God, on this trial, Jesus will not be silent as he was in his own. For he says, everyone who acknowledges me before man, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. And that he will say, in effect, Father, though he is guilty, though she is guilty, I have stood in their place, and I have taken their punishment for them. I have been rejected, that they might be accepted forever. Amen? Amen. Our Father in heaven, we are, even as we started this service today, we are powerless and ungodly. And at the same time, loved beyond imagination. That Christ would die for us. That he would take your rod upon himself. That we might receive his righteousness in his life. We pray for our suffering brothers and sisters here. That Christ would be the source of great comfort. That he would walk with them through their path of trouble and trial. And we pray that even as we reaffirm our allegiance to King Jesus, that we would delight to obey him. Certainly there are areas in our life we are not. Change our heart, Lord, that delight in obedience might flow from us. That we too, not because we have attained some semblance of power, but simply because we love and follow Jesus, we would be an instrument of your kingdom coming into this land. 
Maybe you bring your kingdom even now. She might call upon someone to place their faith in you. Maybe it's a teenager. Maybe it's a young person here who recognizes that they've just been trusting in their parents' faith. That they even now might say to you, no, it's, you're not my parents' king. You're not my parents' God. You're my God. You are my Savior. And Jesus, I yield my life to you. Will you not do that great glorifying work even now for your glory and for their gain, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.